turn with me to John 15. As you turn there, I want to kind of frame up our study for this morning. Uh, I have an app that I, I, I really like to use. I, I kind of built my life around. It's, it's called Todoist. It's basically a productivity app to remind me of the things I need to do. Uh, and as my wife could testify loudly, I am a person who needs a good reminding. Um, and but, but this past year, there has been uh, something that I, I need a constant, almost daily reminder of. And that is that I need to remind myself of the joy that I have in the Lord. That I have a joy that, that cannot be stolen from me. And can you sympathize with that? Can you understand that feeling? It happened just this last week before you and I broke bread and shared a meal on Wednesday. Just an hour before we met, I watched the news and I was devastated. I came in here early to pray and set things up and kind of get things ready. But I, I didn't have all the facts. I didn't have a perspective to share. I was just incredibly sad at the reality of what I saw on the news. And then I got home and began to read and watch and read and watch and pray. And man, I love the sovereignty of God. I love that God is in control of everything, that nothing surprises him because he knew we would be studying joy. He knew that we would be studying the audacity of it, the rebelliousness of it against the current cultural climate. He knew that we would be here together studying his word, praying to be reminded of our joy in him, our delight in him. And he knew what would happen on Washington, D.C. on Wednesday. And family, this if this is or could be the last time I have an interaction with you, I want you to know that I love you, that I've prayed at my bedside for you. And I want you to leave here today knowing That God is the object and the supplier of our joy. The object and the supplier of our joy. Nothing else. Not nationalism, not a a gross misrepresentation of God and country, not a radical law-breaking conservatism that demands that kind of violent entitlement. The mark of the believer is not confederate flags, nooses, and Jesus flags. The mark of the believer is not breaking and entering. It's not rioting or violence. The mark of the child of God is not what you and I watched on Fox and CNN. The mark of the child of God is not making a mockery of our faith by attempting to proselytize God for political zeal and angst. No family. The mark of the believer The mark of the child of God is happy sonship, happy daughterhood in him. And church, this is the reminder that we need. The reminder that we need to wake up every day to. The reminder that I need. That God is the object and supplier of my joy. Of your joy. That God has given us a good feeling in the soul, 
produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the word and in the world. I was reminded that my chief end, your chief end, is to know God and enjoy him forever. Oh, the impossibility of this task. God has given us something impossible to achieve so that we may cry out to him, asking him for his help. And so last week we began this study with remembering the joy that we have is not just for today, not just for tomorrow, but forever. And in this week's text, we'll see the intersections where joy, love, and obedience meet. We'll see that our fullness of joy is found in obedience to him. That the fullness of joy is found in obedience to him. But let me make clear what I am not saying. I am not saying that our righteousness, our right standing with God is worked out in deeds and misdeeds. No. Christ is forever sufficient to take us home. Christ's perfect life purchased for us passage into his kingdom. We only enter it with imputed righteousness. Righteousness, right standing that was given to us freely. Oh, there's joy in even thinking about it. You and I could not work our way into heaven. We could not try. Our filth, our sin has stained us. It cannot be scrubbed away. I have a car that I can't use much. Because things are wrong with it. It's a, a Nissan Altima. And uh, when it was in good condition, I used to jokingly say that was my Maybach. Which is basically like a really expensive car that's like 50 times worth the Altima's worth. But, but for the last year, because it hasn't been working, it's been parked under some trees. And so it's not just filthy. It's stained. It's pearly white color does not shimmer in the light. Its beauty is hidden by the reality of its situation. It's going to take more than a car wash to get her right again. And so it is with us. Our dirtiness because of sin is far too messy for us to scrub off. We need something deeper, something better, something new. And Jesus will teach us from our text this morning that obedience cannot create joy. That keeping commands cannot create a permanent happiness in us. But that our joy is made full by keeping the commands of Jesus. I'll say it again. Our joy is made full by keeping the commands of Jesus. Let's read God's word. Let's pray. And let's hear what he has for us. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you. 
We thank you for the gift of your word. Let it encourage us, correct us, guide us in the ways that you would have us go. We thank you for your church, the primary means of establishing your kingdom here on earth, the beauty of its people, the ministry of its mission. God, we thank you for this day that you have made and made your own. God, help us to see all three of these graces, these gifts of love to us. Soften our hearts and incline our ear to you in Christ's name. Amen. Our text this morning is a portion of a larger whole, and that larger whole part of an even larger narrative. In Jesus' farewell discourse, basically his last lessons before he was arrested, we find this lesson on vines and fruit. In verses 1 through 8, we see that Jesus does two things. He separates those who are not his with warnings of what's to come. And the second thing he does is he addresses those who are his by explaining the distinguishing marks of how we can recognize them. Jesus has left for his people an inheritance, gifts, echoes of himself to his people. In the chapter before, chapter 14, it was peace. You cannot have love or joy without peace. You cannot have love without peace or joy. And you cannot have joy without peace or love. They are all inseparably connected, as R.C. Sproul says. And all are shed onto the hearts of those who are his. This teaches that Jesus is our supreme savior. Jesus says, if you're looking for the true church, I am it. I am the vine and all who are in me, that is to say all who are in Christ, are part of that vine, branches. And you'll know them because they bear fruit. There is an outward expression that is a reflection of the inward work I've done inside them. There is an inheritance of love and joy that Jesus left for the believers through the Holy Spirit. But those who are not bearing fruit, well, church, as I just said a few minutes ago, beware of Christless Christianity. Beware of living as a Christian who is not in constant fellowship with the Lord. Those who show no love, show no peace, who operate in life without a sense of true joy. And as we'll see as we keep going down the text who have little interest in keeping the commands of Jesus. See, family, once you've tasted, tasted the goodness of God, once peace, love, and joy has entered your space, truly, you desire nothing but more of it. So beware. Let's look at the text and handle each verse with care. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. This is where joy begins. A good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty and glory of Christ in the word and in the world. Begins with the grasping, the holding tightly to your understanding of his love for you. 
in order for us to understand the depth of what we just read in verse 9, the sweetness of its meaning, we must understand the depth of the love of God. For Jesus to say, like the Father loves me, so I have loved you, is powerful. This statement, in the context that it was given, in the timing of which it was said, is a sermon all by itself. Think of the disciples. Think of those 11 who remained. Jesus, their teacher, their leader, their savior, was about to leave them. This was the hardest trial they've ever had to experience. Not the storm. Not the persecution they faced along the way. No. It was losing the presence of their Savior. And as Jesus would be who he is, he gave them these words of the richest consolation. Gave them these words when their spirit needed the most tending to. Family, if you have ever wondered if Jesus loves you. If you have ever wondered just how deep that love goes, remind yourself of John 15, 9. Think of this incredible comparison. This is not just a simple I love you. This is not just honeyed words on a sour day. No, family. The depth of which Christ loves you is to the degree that the Father loves him. And who can search those depths? If you do not know where you are in your faith just yet, if you have not yet believed in the risen Christ's power to save you from sin, maybe you're a child still wondering what it means to believe this beautiful news of Jesus. I want you to know that you are loved. You are loved to an infinite end. If you were to visit the deepest parts of the earth, you would be crushed by the depths of it before you saw the ocean's bottom. Know that Christ loves you more than that. Know that he loves you infinitely more than that. If you are mature in your age and maybe for a fleeting moment have wondered, would Christ's love for me ever run out? Just as God's love for Christ will never run out, neither will Christ's love for you run thin. Think on your own children. No matter what they have done, you could not love them less. You could not love them more. And so it is with God on a scale you could not dream of. His love never runs dry. It never fails and it never gives up. And then after such a declaration like, I love you like the Father loves me, he gives a familiar command. Abide in my love. Abide in it. This is where our joy continues to flow like a river that waters dry land. We are not just changed by the truth of depths of God's love. We are called to respond to it, to live in it. God desires the whole person be transformed. You cannot just cognitively know God's love. It has to change your feelings. It has to change your thoughts. It has to change your actions. So then what does it mean really to abide? Abide is an active word. It's like me telling my son to run 
It's like me telling my son to hide. It's not a passive word. It's a word that demands no, uh, it's not a word that demands nothing more than contemplation. No, this is a word that demands action. Abiding is the act of trusting God for all that he is for us in Christ. The same way you and I would have a glass of wine, we trust that it will taste the way that it tastes. We trust that it will warm us in the way that it does. We trust that it will pair well with whatever is on our plate. It is an act of believing, holding to who Jesus says he is. That his works have done what he said they will do. This is where joy continues in our life. We are continually trusting, continually believing, continuing to receive all that Jesus is, all that he said he is, and all that he said he's done. To refer back to Jesus' illustration of the vine, you cannot be attached to such a vine as Christ without teeming with life. There is no way. You could not be attached to such depths of love, such marvelous joy, such lasting peace and be dried up in your bones. No, we are fruitfully abiding with life, love, peace and joy. This is the outward proof of being disciples to Jesus. This is what confirms us to those outside watching us and tells them about the joy, about the love, about the peace that is offered to them in Jesus. Oh, church, my prayer for Cross Point Coast Palm Bay is this, that we would be a people marked by joy. A people marked by the love of Christ in such a way that is not cold, stodgy, or indifferent. But as we grow in knowing the Lord, we grow in our enjoyment of him. Not just today, not just tomorrow, but for forever. I pray this takes place in our homes. That our spouses would look at us and say, baby, you different. That our children would look at us and say, mom, dad, How can I have what you have? How can I be like you? That our neighbors would say, I've heard you speak. I've seen you walk and I want what you have. Look at verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. The English translation, this is where the English language fails us. The English translation of this text can be a bit awkward because it could, it doesn't, but if you're not careful, it could get you in trouble with works-based faith. You could look at this verse and say, ah, I have to keep commands to keep his love. This would make Christ's love for us conditional. This would be as as if Jesus was saying, I'll only love you if you do what I say. But that is not what this is saying. As I was saying at the beginning of our study, receiving Christ's love is not a result of our obedience. Rather, our obedience is the result of receiving his love. Family, be confident. Be confident that you could never lose the love of Christ 
that you could never be stripped of the joy that was given to you. However, you could look at your life and examine your own self and see my joy is not full. I may be deeply loved by God, but right now I don't feel that same depth in return. This is why Jesus, this is why obedience to Jesus' commands is necessary. Not for salvation, not for receiving love, but that our fullness of it may be greater. Our love for God and neighbor may be expanded. Disobedience keeps us from experiencing the love of Christ and living in the fullness of his joy. As Spurgeon would say, disobedience strangles joy. But what are those commands? Well, I wish we had days to go over them. But I'll give you a few. We just studied one to abide. To live in a constant state of reliance. Keeping his words active in our minds. To trust him. To receive more of him. To pray for more reliance. More desire for himself. Out of this command flows flows some others and I'll name them. To love one another, John 13, 34 through 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another and an outward expression of an inward change. To believe in him, John 14, 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, also believe in me. There's that comparison again. Believe what he taught, John 14, 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. And a deep prayer life, John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words and you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It is no coincidence. No coincidence at all. That Jesus is calling us to a life so dependent on him. So full of himself to be constantly looking to him. Spurgeon writes about this verse. Ye shall know it. Ye shall live in it. It shall be the atmosphere you breathe. All that we do, all that we are is tied up in him. But family, if your joy has run dry, reflect on your dependence, your life as it's submitted to him. And don't just denounce the places you are wrong. Don't just denounce the sin you've participated in. Repent of it. Repent in the areas of life you've lived against his commands. In the ways you've chosen to conjure a higher rule than his or worse. Used his word to justify a way of living that doesn't bear fruit. Denouncing is not repenting. I saw Christians be in agreement. With Wednesday's riots, defend it, proclaim its righteousness until it was denounced. Then they denounced it. See, church, denouncing is easy. Repenting is hard. Denouncing is easy. Repenting is hard. It's easy to say lying is bad. It's easy to say stealing is bad. It's easy to say that racism and its rhetoric is bad, but repenting, 
to look at your spouse and say, I've lied to you and I'm sorry. That's hard. To go to a place you stole from and say, I did this. I was wrong. It's hard. Looking at the events of Wednesday and saying, I am broken that for fleeting moments I agreed with this evil demonstration is hard. Family, Jesus is calling you to do the hard. But to do it with his help. The purpose of everything is for our joy. So that it is full until the day. It is complete. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. That my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. Here I'll begin to close. This was his legacy for his disciples. Peace, love, and joy. We may weep. We may endure pain. We may be scared of the battles of flesh and blood. Even scarred by it. But our spirit never, never truly loses joy. His joy. Nothing more clearly marks the Christian than the joy we have at all times. In the good and in the bad. It is all possible because Jesus shares his joy with us. The joy he had, keep, he had in keeping the Father's commands. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to who? Looking to who? To Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the joy that has been shared with us. Joy that remained while Jesus was betrayed. Joy that remained while Jesus was shamed. And joy that remained while he endured the cross. And joy that is as he sits at the right hand of the Father. If Christ could go through all of that and still have joy in his spirit. And if his word is true and never comes back void. Then family, that joy is in you. However, if you've not placed your faith in Jesus, then I tell you now, friend, earthly joy is no real joy at all. This joy, this happiness you feel now is finite. It has a limit. Its cup has a bottom and it will run out. But God's joy is perfect and eternal. His cup overflows and knows no end. Nothing else in this world can help us see the craziness, the ugly, the darkness of this world and keep moving still. Only the joy we have in the Lord. Joy, he is the object of. Joy, he supplied for us. 
joy that is made full in keeping his commands. And you can have it too. You can be his too. You can taste the happiness of God. He is never frustrated. He rejoices in all his works and delights in his children he adopted. Friend, he is calling you home to him. You cannot save yourself from the weight of sin's demands. You cannot live in obedience to work your way into his gates. No, you can only come by invitation. And he is inviting you now. Come and enter in. Take his son's righteousness and put it on. Take his freedom and live in the breath of it. Take Jesus. Take his promises over you and see them come true and join his people as we wait for him to come and for us to be with him forever. Believer, remember the joy you have in him. Remember that he is not just Lord of Sunday, but Lord of every day this week and that his love is for you now and tomorrow. That your joy in him is not just for now, but for tomorrow and the day after. But do not enter the pool of his joy at knee height and say, this is enough. Take the plunge, enter deeper and trust that Christ's love will keep you afloat and drift you to a place you can never reach the bottom of. Be obedient to his commands as your joy is made full in the depths of your soul. Worship and see Jesus as more beautiful and more glorious than you did yesterday. Amen.